Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. If you're one of my regular listeners, you're noticing that this episode is coming out early. That's because today's guest, Greg Deal, uh, who was on a few months ago, he's an indigenous artist and a great guy, uh, reached out to me and was like, hey, I want to talk about uh, the mascot situation that's been going on in this country uh, with all the the Washington team and want, uh, changing their names and stuff. And I was thinking about asking Greg to do the same thing. And I've also been asking or thinking about releasing my episodes more than once a week or if there's special new news pressing timely episodes. I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to record episodes and release those uh, here and there and whenever I want and continue doing my shows on Wednesdays. So um, Greg is an indigenous artist. He does incredible work. And I I, I go to my show notes and um, find all things Greg Deal. Uh, his website is G-R-E-G-G-D-E-A-L.com, gregdeal.com. I'm sure that will take you to his Instagram, which is one of my favorite Instagrams to follow. And actually, Greg is one of the reasons I returned my podcast to the world, because I was like, I want to talk to this guy. Now, I've talked to him twice. And speaking of, let's get to listening to Greg Deal. This is a great episode. Enjoy. Our entire state of being right now is just fucking chaos, as in the world or our fucking country. Yeah, no, there's there's some um, really really kind of insane stuff going on. Um, we're looking more and more like a dystopian. Like the more <laughs> the farther we go, like the closer we're getting to you know Jennifer Lawrence and Hunger Games. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a strange place uh, and a strange time, but um, I don't know. Our last conversation was pretty uh, was was pretty heavy, um, and I was thinking that you know there's this relevant issue going on right now with the Washington uh, football team and with like sports mascots that might be worth a conversation. But they, you know we could probably have some fun with it too because <laughs> while it's serious. It's serious, but it's also not serious. Like, it's both of those things. You know, there's some funny stuff in there. Yeah, I just, I don't get what, uh, like, when they were, like, uh, first talking about, like, we're, we're we're considering it or we're weighing our options or some bullshit. What, what, what was the line they said? Like, I was just like, what's to fucking consider? Like, what is to consider? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think I said this last time too. Oh, are we recording? Are we? Are we? Yes, are yes, we yeah, going? Yeah. I always right on. Uh, no, I think it, like the same conversation we had last time, where you know it's like we're the most visible, invisible group of people in the country, and um, you know, thank thank God for for Black Lives Matter because uh, they've just shown a light on things and have created a, a greater sense of accountability. Um, which doesn't seem to be working in terms of police reform, but, uh, but Hey, everybody gets to paint black lives matter in front of their Capitol building. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> I, don't I, I mean, and I appreciate that. I, I understand the show of, of, uh, the show of force and solidarity in those moments. Um, but they're still fighting for like real change. I mean, they, they arrested hundreds of people who were protesting uh, Breonna Taylor the other day, and, like, not one of the cops that killed her has been held accountable. So there's this there's this strange sort of thing that happens where it's like everything's a PR move. But when it comes to Native people, that PR move um, is not anything more than just like, yeah, we'll think about it, <laughs> which is so messed up and condescending, you know? It's just like... Uh, just so childish. Like, okay, you can have one M M&M and M if you can put your poop in the potty. You know, just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, well, you posted something the other day about the Chiefs and the Blackhawks, and I'm like, yeah, motherfuckers, pipe up. Like, it's you got to, like, you, you don't hear shit. They're like just like hiding, you know, under the bed or something during all this. But it's like maybe the Chiefs and the Blackhawks don't seem as bad to 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 white people but it 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 sucks right for 
Well, I, I, I think that, uh, so my opinion and, uh, and a lot of the natives that are sort of at the forefront of this issue would tell you that, um, like native people as mascots, uh, just needs to be, it needs to be gone. And, and the reason why it needs to be gone is because there's such a subversive amount of racism and it's so ingrained in our culture and in, in American culture um, that it's completely blind to, to, to most people that, you know, it's like you grew up in America and like I watch John Wayne movies and, you know, and I like Indians. And so I can't be racist because of all these things, but all of those narratives from, you know, uh, the Lone Ranger and Tonto, uh, to Cowboys and Indians, which is a false narrative. Cowboys and Indians never happened. It was created for entertainment purposes, um, to comic books and uh, mascots and Kevin Costner being more Indian than any Indian that was ever Indian. And, you know, is this, like all these little things are, are, are false narratives and they're narratives that are essentially um, not uh, driven by indigenous people, but are, um, that are based on the perspective of native people from the outside. Uh, and, and if I can be frank, by mostly white people. And so white people want that. Like I remember a few years ago, Matthew McConaughey, you know, the beloved Matthew McConaughey and his, um, and his uh, reemerging hairline uh, is like, is like, I love the Washington Redskins because that's what I grew up with. And it reminds me of when I was a kid and like, I always loved Cowboys and Indians and all, all this stuff. And it's just like, dude, like first off, grow up. Okay. Like, you know, you're a grown man. Like, I'm glad you have these nice memories, but it's okay to let go of those memories, you know? And, uh, and number two, everything he says is just about everything that fans say and has absolutely nothing to do with native people at all. And so you're holding on to this thing that is about you and not about native people and, and in creating representation and visibility that is appropriate for native people, not just for native people, but for also non-native people to be able to see like indigenous people as real people and not as these sort of caricatures that exist within and has a, have existed within American culture for, you know, a, a several hundred years. Wasn't it just like last year that Cleveland got rid of that, uh, is it Chief Wahoo? What the, what is that thing called? Bro, Cleveland didn't get rid of shit. What they did is they said, we're not going to use this on our uniform anymore but it was still available in all of their merchandise. And, and this is what's, this is what's kind of diabolical is that they make this move. Like we're going to remove from our jerseys. Right. And so they're like, they make this move that is a good PR move. It looks benevolent. Um, but what they're doing is they're taking the burden of responsibility and placing it upon their fans who are going to carry it and who are going to let it live in, you know, perpetuity. So, um, it was this kind of crazy PR move that didn't eliminate anything. And so now they might eliminate it because of everything that's sort of going on in this national discussion. Um, because they're talking about changing their names, but, uh, there's other teams are starting to dig their heels in like big time starting to dig their heels in, which also overflows to high schools. I mean, there's literally thousands of sports mascots that use indigenous imagery. I, I live in Colorado. There's a place about an hour or so from here called Lamar from where I live. And their uh, high school football team uh, is the Lamar Savages. And they've got this white looking like uh, sort of forties, fifties uh, comic book style uh, of a white dude wearing a headdress, like straight up. It's just, you know, egregious. <laughs> I just like, can you even enjoy, have you ever been able to enjoy sports or is it just like this off? Oh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> like I, I mean, I, when I was a kid, uh, I mean, uh, I think, I think a lot of stuff comes with like education too. Like you know, one of the big arguments on the mascot debate, it's like, uh, for the Washington football team, they're like, look, this has been around for 80 years. Why didn't you say something before? 
Okay, well, 80 years ago, natives were like barely able to leave the reservations. Um, they were, you know, put into this position and, and place where like their religion, uh, if, if I can call it that, it's not really religion, but like ceremonies and traditional dress, like all those things were illegal. You, you could be arrested for performing ceremonies on your own homelands. Uh, and, and like the level of input and education was just not really in a place to inform everything. I mean, so 80 years ago, it was not just like an equal playing field where they're inviting indigenous people to the table saying, Hey, we're going to do these sports mascots. And like, is, is this okay with you? You know? And, and frankly, even if it was, um, there's a, there's a progression of thought that's never been allotted to native people. So, you know, obviously in the black community, the N word was used openly and freely. And then, you know, during the civil rights movement, um, the term Negro became a word and now that's not really appropriate either. And so there's this sort of progression of thought as we define these things, because our country has not defined so much of these things, you know, what we call microaggressions now are like, not like at one time it was just like, somebody said something passive aggressive and you can't really point it out. And if you do, someone's like, ah, you're just being too sensitive. You're blown out of proportion. Well, now we have a word that defines those things. So as we define these spaces and as we become more educated, we start to realize that like a bunch of white dudes wearing red face, dressing up like Indians at a game is not appropriate. And that it, that the entire culture of that space begets something that's not appropriate. So when I was in high school, uh, I worked for this pizza place. It was like a sports bar. And um, we watch a lot of football and stuff. And I like, you know, I like a lot of stuff. I was more, I I got more into basketball than anything. Um, But like, I just honestly don't mess. I don't mess around with NFL or baseball. I don't, I don't mess around with any of that stuff anymore. Cause I, I don't see what the point is. You know, those, those spaces are not set up to be, uh, I mean, it's not set up to be like this sweet, equitable place where people can come and like, you know, have opinions that are outside of uh, the desire to watch grown men in tights tackle each other all day. I, I don't, it's a strange sort of culture. And I've just been on the receiving end of that by having just these simple opinions, these simple opinions, by the way, that don't, that has a little bit to do with me, but has a lot to do with my kids. And has a lot to do with studies that have been done on the the use of mascots and stereotypes and caricatures and the way that that affects our, our native youth and the way they view themselves and the way that they view their own self-worth. It's like another thing amidst a, a pile of things that is has a, a direct and scientifically proven negative impact on our youth. And it's it's already hard to be a, you know, a teen or a preteen, and then you throw you layer th- that on it. Like, I, I mean, it's you know, yeah. I mean, it's like if you're if you're chubby and and fourteen, you're already gonna get shit. If so, and if, then if and you already probably have body image or like self image, self, you know, esteem issues. And then you throw something else in there that's just like common, like just weird. I I couldn't imagine what that would how that would weigh on someone's subconscious and conscious yeah it's 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 all really strange like i said before it's all like kind of subversive um you know back when you know uh, john wayne well i mean you can even go back further than that when you're looking at uh silent films especially these films have had a huge impact on the way people see and view native people so the the indians uh are sort of like the the uh, antagonists in these silent films, you know, because uh, they're trying to, you know, a lot of these films are, are trying to uphold, if not actually tell stories of Westward expansion and manifest destiny and just sort of the, the romantic notions of pioneers and, uh, and discovery. And so the, the natives have always been the antagonists in that story um, if you look at John Wayne movies, it's the same thing. And, and most of those movies are, are an issue because there are real natives in a lot of those movies, but they're all like the extras. And then like the main characters who are natives, they like painted their skin 
and uh, their white dudes have painted their skin, you know, to to look like Indians. And then um, there's these cool stories, these funny stories where like Navajos were actually speaking Navajo, and and the filmmakers were like, hey, let's can you please talk Indian? And then uh, and then the Navajos are talking, but they're like they're literally on camera talking trash about like the actors oh, that's great. Um, in, in Navajo. Yeah. It's fantastic. But, um, but you know, that's where we see the sort of the Indian antagonists um, or the Indian that is, uh, that is sort of um, poor and downtrodden. And then you start to see a flip in spaghetti Westerns. You know, there's, there's uh, these moments where <clears throat> Clint Eastwood, has these natives in there that like are kind of given life. Like they, they are no longer this sort of one dimensional character that's in the background trying to create problems. But, um, there's like the outlaw Josie Wales. That's uh, the one I was thinking of is the older fella. As a kid, I, he, I thought he was great. Like I've, I haven't seen that movie since I was probably a kid, but he was probably my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, he says some pretty deep stuff. But what's also kind of funny is that, like, while I know those spaghetti westerns and and even Clint Eastwood, you know, at that time, I don't I, I don't know what he's doing now, uh, other than talking to chairs without people in him. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, but um, I think there was an effort to sort of humanize natives. But even in that film, which I love, uh, you know, my father and I used to watch that all the time. And that's the other thing, guys. I'm like an Indian that loves Westerns. And I think it's, I think that's kind of hilarious. Um, I love old Westerns and I love, uh, sci-fi. Like those, those two things are probably my favorites, but, um, but he, uh, even in that moment, there's like this monologue that, that the Indian, the, the native guy is saying, and he's talking about how like the white man's been sneaking up on me for years because Josie Wales snuck up on him. And, uh, and then he's talking about how he's this civilized Indian and he's like telling this whole story. He's this great monologue. And what does Clint Eastwood character do? Ignores him and falls asleep. He literally starts snoring in the middle of his monologue. And so there's this other little like sort of dismissive thing that happens. That's kind of funny, but also like, yeah, but that's kind of messed up too. <laughs> like, do, you think, and, uh, do you think at all it could have been <laughs> metaphoric? Or do you think it was a? I, I'm I'm just asking. I, I you're probably the the way. I, I'm just curious if he was trying to make a statement. I you know probably not. I was just curious. I you know I think uh, no. I I mean I think the character outlaw Josie uh, Josie Wales is just like too cool for school. You know, and and oh, that's, that's sort of true. his whole his whole thing. So, um, but but i think that like while those things exist and while i i you know i enjoy those films it does raise questions because when when we omit certain things we automatically give value to those things right so if we if we have the native and he's doing this great monologue and then he gets cut off because the hero in the film snoring through his monologue cuz he's bored with what he's saying like by omission, that's making a statement about what the native person is saying and the value of what he's saying. Yes. And, um, and we begin to see that in other films, like in the nineties, it was last of the Mohicans, you know, Daniel day Lewis, uh, who's a fantastic actor. Um, but he is that sort of trope. He's, he's the white dude amidst, uh, native dudes that is more Indian than any of the Indians that are in the film. Like he runs faster. He can shoot straighter. Like it's just completely insane. And that's an old trope from like comic books in the forties and fifties. And, uh, and even Kevin Costner, you know, where he's just like that, that movie, which hasn't aged well, by the way, is, uh, the quintessential like white savior movie. Um, I don't think that movie was good. (laughs) It probably just aged worse, but I just remember thinking that was just a, floundering piece of shit when I saw it <laughs> it was you know it was a really interesting film I mean because it has its place I think in filmmaking in terms of uh, like it was the first film that had uh, native linguists that are in there to help them like actually speak the language all the costumes were made by native people so like it, it created some temporary jobs during the production of that film it was the first time you're hearing uh, indigenous language or specifically Lakota 
and um, and you're seeing subtitles on the film. So I mean, that's that's some groundbreaking stuff. But the entire film is about a white dude who suffers in behalf of Indians more than the Indians do. And I really, really want. I would love to shoot a brand new ending to that because the the medicine man in in that um, in that film is Graham Greene. Uh, who got real popular for a minute in the '90s as sort of like the you know the friendly Indian, um, and he was a fantastic actor, and uh, so he's like the best friend with John Dunbar, you know uh, Kevin Costner's character, and at the end, like you know, well, first off, Kevin Costner's character literally finds the only white woman in the entire tribe and like connects with her. Um, and she's like, she looks feral, like her hair is on camps. Like there's gotta be some native woman in that group. that like hold that woman down and brush her freaking hair because <laughs> hair is, hair is a big issue. Like you got to take care of that stuff. Like hair is a reflection on your family. Your hair is not taken care of. It's a reflection on, you know, your family and who, and if anybody's taking care of you, if there's any value being given to your appearance, you know, and that's a, that's a weird little cultural thing. So having like the only white woman in the tribe who looks feral and then the white dude who comes along connects with her and then they like, they like get married. And, uh, and then at the end of the film, spoiler alert, they, uh, because Kevin Costner got caught by a bunch of white dudes and got the crap beat out of them, uh, thus suffering more than any of the natives that he and his white Indian wife pack their stuff and decide to, to leave their winter camp and as they're leaving, it's so dramatic. You know, there's one guy that's like standing on the hilltop and he's speaking Lakota saying, saying, you are my friend and uh, I will always remember you. And then you've got Graham Green kind of doing this sad uh, sort of farewell. And then they leave. And then, and then the sort of uh, the, the final titles in the film is just like, and the Indians died. So it's like, it's like, that's the whole thing. And I want to redo it so that it's like, they're packing up Kevin Costner and his white Indian wife and, uh, and, and Graham green says in Lakota, uh, it was really nice uh, having you here. Fuck off. <laughs> and just, have, just have them leave. And, and the Indians continue to live and uh, survive colonialism, you know, whatever <laughs> comes with that. But like, you know, we're still here. We're not like gone, you know? So, <laughs> and has has Hollywood ever addressed any of this, or or, or have you seen anything with uh, like with the recent resurgence of trying to correct these issues? Has Hollywood addressed? There it? are, yeah. There's some whisperings. Like there's some really good, really really good filmmakers out there um, that are native, and native filmmaking's kind of been in this weird place where it's like kind of like the. Tyler Perry thing, you know, or, or even black exploitation sort of films where it's like you're, they're making these great films and they have like, you know, there's these, uh, statements about, um, you know, different things that are cultural or, or even social relevance within sort of these, these very specific marginalized groups. Um, but most of those films have sort of been regulated to a corner of whimsy and not really been given anything at the forefront. Um, there's this film, there's a couple of films out there. Um, well, first there's uh, Chris Iyer, who is, um, who did uh, Smoke Signals. Oh, yeah, I uh, saw, I saw independent, that. Independent, in, yeah. It was, I'd love That's to. A, it's a decent independent film. Um, there's uh, this other film called Rhymes and Ghouls by uh, Jeff Barnaby. Um, it's also a native one. Um, and then, and then you'd see something like, um, uh, flags of our fathers, uh, which has Adam beach depicting, um, you know, what's his name? Uh, Ira Hayes, uh, from, you know, world war two from the raising of the flag of Yerojima. Um, and, and, and yeah. And Adam beach absolutely should have been at least, gotten an Oscar nod on that and he didn't even get so much as that. Um, and there's films that have been made like, you know, uh, Geronimo came out in the nineties, uh, with wet studio. And that's interesting. Um, not, not necessarily correct, but still like an interesting portrayal. Um, but then I also like seeing like Jim Jarmusch's dead man with Johnny Depp. 
and he has this guy in, in dead man that, um, his name is nobody. And he's played by this, uh, this Cayuga actor from Canada named, um, Gary farmer. And he's freaking hilarious, man. Like his name is nobody. He's like, I'm nobody. And, uh, it's like fantastic little idioms that exist here and there, but I'm hearing whisperings of, um, a possible indigenous sitcom, uh, or, or series is supposed to be coming up that is written and directed by, um, and there's also a lot of really cool writers out there. Like there's a, um, a woman that, um, is, uh, uh just totally spaced on her name because, because I'm a jerk. Um, <laughs> the, hold on. Uh, her name is, uh, is Sierra Ornales, and she's a Navajo writer, and she's written for uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and for uh, Superstore, and so a bunch of contemporary pieces that she's written for, um, which is super cool. And then there's there's a woman that's, uh, she's, I guess you could consider her uh, black indigenous um, on the East Coast, and, um, she has been writing, like she wrote for, her, uh, Kimmy Schmidt with, um, what's her name? Uh, just totally blanked out with Tina Fey. Yeah. Um, and she's been writing a bunch of stuff as well. So there's like, there's these things you can see, you can see things rising up through the ranks, um, and actually starting to, to take place, which is, which I think is super cool. Um, and I think it's totally worth noting that there's a lot of changes that are taking place. Um, the, the friend who wrote for Kimmy Schmidt, um, her name is, uh, AZ Mira, uh, Dungey, And, um, she's, uh, freaking hilarious. Her, her actual first piece that kind of, I think put her on the map is she was, um, doing a web series called, uh, ask a slave because she played uh, a black woman in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is all like, um, uh, said as like everybody that works there is said in that time, they dress in that style. And so she had this whole series where people would ask her, wow. she would repeat insane questions that people would ask her, uh, about slaves. And it, it's disheartening and hilarious. Um, and so she's, she's super on the level. It, it just to back up with it, the mascot, any of these teams ever, do they formally like they don't apologize do they, they, they even if like did uh washington changes the name of the team do you think there'll be a formal apology or are they just gonna like sort of keep their mouths shut i don't really see a formal apology i mean dan snyder who's the owner of the washington football team said uh the the name will never change put it in caps like and uh, he was famous for saying that. Um, he's a prideful dude, so I, I can't imagine he's going to be like, oh, my bad. Like, I can't, I just, I can't see that happening. Um, I think that there's a lot of, uh, I think there's probably a lot of resentment. Um, but they set up the, uh, what is it, the first Americans uh, fund presented by the Washington Redskins. Like, so they had a nonprofit that had a racial slur in it. And, uh, they like were giving, giving money to, or wanted to give money to native people, um, which they were able to successfully do with a few communities, but most communities were like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> like we're, we don't, we don't want your PR money, you know, cause that's all it was. It was just like this sad PR move. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't foresee apologies happening at all. Hi, I'm going to take a quick break from the conversation right now, just to ask your help for a few things. If you could please rate and review the show on iTunes, that would mean a lot to me. Also subscribe and tell your friends about the podcast. If you could do so in person or on social media, that would mean so much to me. And if you really want to be a bigger part of the show, you could become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. You can find out all this information uh, at themattdwyer.com. Um, the Patreon has bonus episodes and all kinds of extras and fun stuff. So please do that and it will help me. Also, there's merch, t-shirts and whatnot at themattdwyer.com. Thank you very much. Back to the conversation. Supreme Court decision about in Oklahoma. How, how did 
is because part of me goes like, yeah, they've said that I, I don't know if I fully understand the whole situation, but they said like a large portion of the state of Oklahoma belongs to indigenous people. Correct. Yeah. But yeah. Um, go ahead. Oh, I just I mean, with the history of such things, I can't imagine indigenous people are feeling very faithful that that's going to come come through. I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm, I've seen a lot of positive stuff and positive reactions, um, but also, you know, when you consider there's like over 500 treaties that the United States have made with individual, uh, you know, tribal nations, um, and not one of them has been kept. Every single one of them has been broken. And, and so, you know, that, that, that's nice because even the, even the Supreme Court um, has stated that because of treaties and even, even, indigenous communities that didn't make treaties, that there is a federal trust obligation uh, that the, the federal government has with the United, or with, uh, with tribes in the United States. And so that federal trust obligation is really interesting because it denotes that there is a uh, responsibility that is uh, owed to indigenous people because of loss of land, loss of life, loss of culture, loss of language, like all of those things. Um, so, you know, most people in this country look at native people and they're like, well, you got reparations, you know, or, well, you got land, you know, what are you complaining about? Well, you're getting a paycheck from the government. So everything's okay. There's a huge difference between a social program and federal trust obligations. Um, social programs are set up to help people that are in need, uh, out, uh, but for whatever reason are demonized horrifically. And uh, what the Native nations get, if they get anything, um, is part of a federal trust obligation, is part of treaties. Treaties are protected under the Constitution of the United States. Um, Article 6, Section 2 says that treaties are the supreme law of the land. And so there is an obligation that's there. And I think even when you have a conservative Supreme Court, when it comes down to it, they can't deny the obligation that is, that is in place for this. Um, and so that, that, that statement is great, but it's also a statement that's just simply true and falling off of, off of truths. And, and I'd like to point out that a week or so after making that, or a week or so before making that statement, uh, you know, Trump and his people were having a rally at Mount Rushmore, which is, uh, in fact, treaty land to the Lakota. Uh, the Black Hills are a sacred space um, that has, you know, these white forefathers carved into it. And so there was this, there was all these um, protests and stuff happening for that uh, during that event. And all these natives got got uh, arrested by cops in full riot gear. Uh, looking all nice and militarized, and all of those natives that got arrested for that are are facing federal uh, federal uh, charges on their own homelands that are protected or supposed to be protected under treaties. Jesus Christ! Do you th- yeah. What do you know? What some of those charges are? I'm just curious because they're really- um, well. I- I don't right off the top of my head, but I think uh, I think that two things are happening. Um, one is is if it's treaty land, um, there are two things in play. In the same way that they're play in a state, there's uh, the law that is set up by tribes and in those spaces, and then there's federal law. And same thing happens in states, right? So it's like a state can charge, and federal federal can also charge um, based on you know whatever the crime is, whatever the issue is. But on reservations, uh, everything defaults to federal uh, federal law. That might be happening, uh, and then also uh, Trump may be trying to uh, him and his folks trying to push federal law because he was there, and it was uh, like a protest on those spaces. I mean, like if you protest in Washington D.C. on a national park and you get picked up for something, you could be charged with a federal crime. You know, if I if I if I write, you know, all cops are bastards on, you know, the uh, Department of the Interior building, that's a federal crime because it's a federal building. That's the so, that, um, that's the shit they're trying to pull in uh, Portland. That's the loophole they're using. They're saying they're there to protect the federal buildings, which is fucking bullshit. 
Yeah, it, it's and in places like D.C., it's really, really uh, serious. So, like, I, I right out of college was part of the um, uh, the opening of the National Museum of American Indians. And if you've ever been to that building, like the rock on the outside of it is kind of jagged, and so it's not like a pure, uh, you know, sort of greek style building that's all smooth and marble um there's rock that was brought in that uh from some specific places to make a building that doesn't look like any other building on the national mall um but like uh, we've caught people trying to climb up it like free climb it and um we just lightly let them know like hey listen you should get down because um what you're doing is actually a federal offense and um so yeah those those things are like these strange areas that are pretty well defined but are also just blurred enough for your average citizen that they could get pinched on like on a technicality um also i don't I, not to I, i've been curious because i've been seeing a lot of things in in uh, or re, uh in relation to covid and how that is being just blatantly ignored by the government in on a lot of the reservations yeah, yeah, the statistics that they're releasing um, do not include indigenous people. Um, and the same thing is true, you know, with missing and murdered indigenous women, um, girls, and two-spirit. Um, there's a national registry for uh, every demographic in this country of who's missing or who's been kidnapped. And, you know, so there's statistics for all of that. Indigenous people um, have also not been included on that either. So we make up, I don't know, 1% of the population maybe, um, but there, it's been decided that it's not enough to count. That invisibility is also an important statement about our existence too. Jesus, that's so... <laughs> it's just so dark. and Well, I mean, it's no wonder that the rest of the country thinks that Native people are dead, right? I mean, like, we're, we're not showing up in places... When, you know, like, uh, here's a statistic, um, native men between the ages of 25 and 45 are more likely to face police brutality, um, and, or actual death, uh, by police brutality than any other race or ethnic group in the country followed, you know, very closely at a second of, uh, young black men. So, I mean, these statistics are real, um, but because of our visibility or invisibility, there's not a lot of information that's being given out to the public for anybody to really understand. Um, and I don't make that statement to belittle the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement, because that is an incredibly important movement. Um, I am a Native person, you know, that is, uh, that is in favor of uh of black lives and that uh, i think that that's important that black lives matter on indigenous lands and i feel strongly about that um but you know there's things that are happening to indigenous people particularly indigenous men and indigenous women um on different issues or different spectrums um that are horrific man they're just absolutely horrific there's this kid, uh, his name was, um, this young man, his name was, uh, Zachary Bearheels. And, um, he had some, uh, he had some, uh, some mental disorders. Um, you know, he was, uh, having some trouble. And so, um, I'm not sure exactly what the thing was. And what I understand is that he, um, was trying to get home. His mom was trying to get him back home where he could get some help and get what he needed. And so he was on a bus and he had an episode on uh, the bus. And, um, so his mom called the police of, uh, where they were at and just basically begged the police, like, can you please just get my son on the bus? Because I just need to get him home so that he can get some help. So the police show up and this guy resists, of course, Zachary uh, resists, um, and ultimately is detained. Um, he gets, he escapes essentially, and he runs away and he gets tased and they tase him so much that it killed him. He got tased to death. And then when they moved him and they picked him up, they picked him up by his braids Jesus. and like dragged him, you know, and, 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 
there's no accountability that happens in those things in the same way that there's no accountability, accountability, you know, with black lives in the same thing. And so there's these horrific things that are happening, you know, and, and, um, you catch glimpses of it here and there. And, uh, you know, you can't, you can't tear down statues of Christopher Columbus and not have a discussion about native people. I don't think that's, that's possible without purposely just ignoring it. And, um, and then you can see it in other places too. Like there's a film that came out, uh, called wind river with, uh, Jeremy Renner. And it is very specifically about missing and murdered indigenous women. And, uh, it was really well done and they really wanted to, you know, kind of put things at the forefront. It's modern. It's like, it's real. Um, it, it is a little bit white savior ish, but I don't know, man, that film, like, that film shook me to my core because I have two girls, you know, and, and, uh, the likelihood of them facing sexual violence in their lifetime is about one in three, which, uh, if I remember right, it's about 10 times like than the national average. Oh, damn. Um, <laughs> well, you know, so I have. I think I specifically talked to you about how I was like, "Yeah, the last one was really heavy, uh, so maybe we can have some fun with this one." Yeah, we should really. You and I should hang out. I bet you it's going to be uh, just you and me at a table. We'd we'd probably be uh, holding each other and crying with about uh, forty five minutes. I ain't holding no white man crying. What are you talking about? <laughs> I just, as a guy who has two daughters, like, you know, you know, that's, it resonates, you know, it's, you're just like, I mean, every day, especially with the the way the world is now, just to be a father, just to, to be a father alone is a terrifying, like, I just constantly think of what my daughters are going to have to navigate if we don't turn this shit storm around. Um, and speaking of which, though, with all this, with all that is happening and with the protest, do you, do you feel there's a sense of change or are you skeptical? Um, I, you know, I really hope things come through on this election, um, so that we can get, um, a more reasonable tyrant in, in the white house. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you know, say what you will, you know, George Bush was pretty dismissive about natives because, you know, Clinton put together a a position in the White House that had sort of a liaison to Indian country so that there was a relationship that was there. Um, And it wasn't great, but there was at least something there. Bush came in and he was like, nah, you know, he just ignored it. Um, And Obama came in and he, you know, had something as well. Um, but at the same time, you know, Obama was pretty dismissive and sort of omitted his relationship in the Dakota Access Pipeline when that whole thing was blowing up, you know. And so, um, so I don't, I don't know that you can really, I don't think you can really get anything that's going to be perfect. Um, but uh, Trump is scary, man. He's a scary dude. Um, he eliminated uh, land rights for the Wampanoag, um, which are essentially the descendants of the people who met the pilgrims. You know, like he like they stripped them of their tribal status. So there's there's weird things happening like that. Um, and and of course, you know, when he went into office, the first thing he did was sign a uh, an executive order for the for the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone Pipeline, which. Um, egregiously go through native lands uh, without permission uh, of those tribes or those communities that have a stake in that space, Um, which of course has been struck down. The uh, Supreme Court, I believe, was the one who struck down or somebody struck down the Dakota Access Pipeline um, as uh, being inappropriate and they need to stop it and empty it and and, uh, you know, pay reparations and everything for for the damages. But um, I don't know, man. I hope, you know, I hope, <laughs> but, um, I don't think that change is going to come from the white house. I don't think change is going to come from our Senate. I think change is going to come from the people. And I think watching black lives matter, it, it really proves that, that it's going to come from the people and the citizens putting pressure on the governing bodies. I think the government is really 
forgotten that they're supposed to serve the people and uh, not the other way around. Um, and I, and I think Trump is really the embodiment of that, man. That's that I can't think of anybody who embodies the sort of corporate structure, uh, citizens are here to work for me and make my life easier than, than that man. Um, so I hope, I hope it changes, but who knows, man, I live in a Trump nest, so it's kind of insane where I live and just watching the way people are, especially cause, um, Colorado, just the governor put forth a, uh, a mandatory order on masks. So there's some people like just losing their minds. Yeah. It's uh, it, to just back up with the, when s- Trump or somebody like that, when they strip somebody of their tribal rights, is there, is that just him being cruel and malicious or is there, do you, is there like a long something to it that I'm not seeing? I think it could be any of those things. I mean, Trump has made it very clear that one of his great uh, presidential heroes is um, Andrew Jackson. And, uh, our, yeah, Andrew Jackson, um, who, 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 like, signed an executive order for Indian removal. So he was responsible for the Trail of Tears and for removing tribes from their homelands to, like, Oklahoma and those places. Um, if I remember right, he also brokered like, you know, the Louisiana purchase. So there's all these like little things that are are happening in there. Um, Trump is the, the most dangerous president since Thomas Jefferson. And he tries his best to, um, to emulate him. And, uh, I say Thomas Jefferson, I meant Andrew Jackson, sorry. Um, and so there's a lot of issues there. Uh, and, and, there's these old videos of him where he's trying to stop, trying to get Congress to stop uh, tribes from building casinos, you know, in and in, in around, you know, New York tri-state areas uh, because, I mean, let's be honest, because they might affect his casinos. And, um, and so there's, there's been some, I mean, he's got a history with native people, very dismissive where he's like, they don't look like Indians. They're not Indians, you know, and, and trying to get their stuff shut down. Um, but I also think he has people in his white house that have agendas that are very specifically, um, based on sort of white supremacy and about eliminating, uh, the perception of groups like native people. Yeah. I mean, there's without a doubt, like, I mean, I feel like I've, uh, uh, you heightened this knowledge for me when I was researching you the first time I was just like this fucking country, like I believe, or <laughs> I don't believe it's like, it is founded by white supremacists and I feel like it's still thriving and being run by what, like, I mean, if Mitch McConnell isn't a white supremacist, I don't know who the fuck is, you know? And these guys I think are terrified that white, people are becoming are going to become the minority in this country and that and this is why we're in this amped up state of because they're fucking afraid and they're doing everything they can to get get a grasp do you know miss mcconnell's wife is asian i do (laughs) (laughs) i found that out the other day i was like what (laughs) but i've known other i've known white people who've been married to people of of a variety of and they're still bigoted pieces of shit. So <laughs> it's like, I mean, yeah, I, it's so strange, right? <laughs> yeah. I used to work with a woman who her, she, um, she was divorced and I, I know why probably, but she was married to a black man. So her kids were half and she would say the most racist shit in the world and then be like, but you know, I, you know, my kids are half black. And I'm like, that's you. That's like, that's even worse <laughs> that you're using your kids. Yeah. I've, I've known a few people like that, um, where it's the same thing, like, uh, basically like a redheaded white dude married to, um, a black woman. And so his kids are mixed and, um, but him saying like, uh, there are not more black deaths than there are white deaths. And, um, when it's not about a numbers game in that sense, it's actually more about like, uh, you know, statistic probability, um, you know, per capita. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are, are more white people that are dying than, than, um, black people. But, uh, when you take into consideration, um, 
the number of black people in this country, the number of black people that are incarcerated, the number of black people that are being um, killed by police officers for, for minor offenses who are unarmed, who are not aggressive, um, who are just sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, this kid, um, this kid in, in Aurora uh, that was killed last August um, was just the saddest thing, man. And he literally didn't do anything. And, uh, it's, it's, I don't think it's, you know, like it's not some white trash dude in Florida. Cause there's a few of those down there. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, uh, you know, is, is trying to sell meth, uh, while smuggling alligators. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like a dude, that is just running away from police in a Wendy's parking lot in Atlanta is getting shot in the back, yeah. you know? And so Elijah McClain is this kid that was in Aurora. And, um, I don't know if you've read anything about this kid. Uh, I, he was a young man and he, he had anxiety and he had, there's like a number of things that like, he was just a really sensitive kid. He used to go to the, the, he used to go to the, um, to the pound and play music for the animals, you know, like with, with his violin. And, uh, he was just, you know, he's a quirky kid. He's a nice kid. There's a transcript of his last, his last words. Oh gosh. I can't even, I can't even think about it without getting emotional about it. Cause it's, he was just such a lamb, you know? And that's, that's the issue. Those are the issues that are happening. And that's not to say that there aren't injustices for other people. Um, that are having experiences that are poor. It, it's that the likelihood of a black person or a brown person um, being victimized in that way is exponentially greater than it is for anybody else in the country. And that's the issue, you know? Um, but I don't understand this fear because <laughs> like everything is like, they're just now starting to create more, uh, spaces for people of color in, in every industry across the country. Um, and they have to do that because these industries are overwhelmingly white because the institutions that are in place to provide opportunities, uh, for industry, for money, for access to money, for equity, for any of those different things have, have, have not just been withheld, um, but have been legislated specifically to keep people of color from advancing and having access to these things. And um, whether it's, you know, redlining uh, housing districts or it's uh, voting rights or any of those things. And it's just, it's, it's, it's all subversive. How do you explain that to somebody? You know, how do you explain that to a poor white person? You know, how do you talk to a poor white person about privilege? uh, when they are poor and they don't have access to anything either, you know? So it's, it's a really tough conversation to have with people because people are not open to looking at it, uh, from, from a perspective that makes sense. very much for listening to conversations with matt dwyer do me a favor subscribe to the podcast remember to rate and review it and if you like become a patreon supporter at patreon.com slash matt dwyer conversations with dwyer also listen to my friend's podcast hunk by mike bridenstine and Kilgallen's pub with joe Kilgallen. thank you so much for listening i look forward to seeing you again